0: thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you need additional help on how to do that, we have a next steps page on our website that you can check out. Also, if you haven't been able to attend a service at any one of our campuses recently and participate in the time of giving, you can give anytime you want online by visiting our give page or by texting to give. We hope that God speaks to you in this sermon. Take care. I wanna wanna start today by asking you a question. What do you think God thinks about you? And I want you to put some serious thought to this on all of our campuses and for those watching online and following along in the prisons, what does God think about you? Does God think you're a good person? Does God think you're a bad person? Does God think you're sometimes good and sometimes bad? What does God think about you? Okay, now I want you to think about something else. What do you think about you? Do you think you're a good person? Do you think you're a bad person? Do you think you're somewhere somewhere in the middle? Here's what's interesting about us as human beings. What we think about ourselves is often very closely tied to what we believe God thinks about us. If I was bad, if I sinned, if I hurt someone, if I had a bad day where I made some moral mistakes, if I wasn't good, then God probably isn't that happy with me. But if I was good, if I loved well, if I cared for people and showed compassion and I served others, then God looks at me and he's happy with me. He thinks I'm good. The heavens part, doves fly around over our heads and God says, this is my son or my daughter whom I love and am well-pleased. See, many of us at some point in our lives will struggle with this idea, where we believe that our thoughts about ourselves become God's thought about us. We project who we believe ourselves to be on God. But here's the crazy thing about God. I don't think God takes his cues from you or from me. I don't think God waits to see, what does Steve think about myself? Yeah, 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 that's what I'm going to think about him too. I don't think that's how God operates. See, this is what makes God so other and set apart from us. It's not about what you do or don't do that informs God's love for you. He loves you regardless. Actually, God is defined as love. He couldn't love humanity more and nothing we could do could make him love us less. If you wanna know what God thinks about you, just open up this book. God says, you are my beloved. You are my child. I created you. I knit you together. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I know you. You are mine. You are valuable. I have crowned you with glory and honor that while you were yet sinners, I sent my son to die for you. This is how I show my love. This is what God thinks about us. And he thinks this about each and every single one of us. And this is a significant truth that we have to understand before we begin our conversation together today as we discover what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves. So far, we've learned what it means to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And now we move into the second part of the one commandment, of the one thing Jesus said is most important. He made a two-part law here. He said, love God with everything and and love your neighbor as yourself. And if I'm being honest, that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, has always confused me. It's difficult for me to understand because I don't really know what it means to love someone as much as I love myself. Because I don't really know how much I love myself. I know how much I love my wife, I know how much I love my son, I know I would do anything for either of them, but I don't know how much I love myself. Beyond that, I know that there are people who are listening to me today who don't actually love themselves all that much. So how is that person supposed to to understand and put into practice what Jesus says when he says, love your neighbor as yourself? I think that's why for as long as I can remember, I haven't thought about what Jesus said in light of how much I love myself, but rather how much myself is loved. You see, before we begin our conversation today about loving our neighbor as ourselves, we have to understand how much ourselves are loved. This command from Torah that we've been studying, that Jesus reiterated, isn't about loving others as much as you love you. It's about loving others as much as God loves you. To know what God thinks about me informs the way I treat other people. It informs the way I love other people when I understand how much I'm loved. And then to enter into our conversation today, it begs the question, so what do you think about other people? Do you love other people like You are loved? Do you hate other people? Are there any groups of people or types of people or specific individuals that you would say, I hate them? I'm guessing most of us would say no to that question because we're at church and we wanna impress those around us. We wouldn't say we hate other people. We might say, ah, there's some people I don't like. Like, I'd be okay if they never walked the face of the planet ever again, but I don't hate them. I just don't like them. I don't like being around them. They're, they're too racist, they're too arrogant, they're too conservative, they're too liberal, they're too old, they're too young, they're too lazy, they're too angry. And while they might be those things, here's what we can't ever lose sight of. We can never lose sight of the fact that for as much as you are loved, so are they. The same love God has for you, God has for them. The same savior who died for you, died for them. Even those people you don't like. That's why the best question to start with today is the same question we briefly discussed in week one. What does it look like to love someone else who God loves just as much as God loves me? What does it look like to love someone else who God loves just as much as God loves me? You know, on one occasion, Jesus was asked a question that he didn't answer, which is kind of common practice for Jesus. He wouldn't answer a lot of the questions directly that he was asked. But how he responds, the way Jesus responds really helps us with this today. It helps us understand what it looks like to love someone else who God loves just as much as God loves me. We find this in Luke chapter 10. Go ahead and open your Bible or your Bible apps to Luke chapter 10. We're going to spend a significant amount of time in this passage today, so so get there with me. I don't want you to, to miss out on what we're talking about. Follow along with me. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. It's after Matthew and Mark, and it's before John. If you get to John or Acts, you've gone too far. Go back the other way. If you're on your Bible app, it's pretty simple. It's just listed there, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 10, verse 25. Verse 25 is where we're gonna start. All right. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus knew that there was more to this question than just the question he was being asked. So Jesus answers this man's question, this lawyer's question, with another question which is also common practice for Jesus. He says to the lawyer, what is written in the law? You're a lawyer, tell me what's written in the law. How do you read it? He answered, the lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Now this sounds familiar to us, right? I mean, we've been studying this passage for five weeks. Actually, no. The story we've been studying up to this point comes from Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is asked, which commandment is the greatest? It's actually a completely different scenario, a completely different occurrence than what we're reading in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus answers that question by saying the greatest commandment, the greatest law out of all 613 rules that we have is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And while his audience was nodding their head yes, he said, and, and they said, what do you mean and? We asked for one commandment and now you're giving us two. And Jesus said, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, it's not just about vertical love, the love of God, but it's also about horizontal love. How you treat those around you. And Jesus grabs this from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Here's what we read in the Torah, in in Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. This law is saying to not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Among your people is an important three words I would like us to hold on to today. Among your people is some really important context, and it's actually still a phrase we use in 2018, right? We've all heard someone say, those are my people. Like there's someone, like maybe there's a group of people that you're like, they really like what I like. They do what I do, those are my people. Or there may be a group of people that don't do what you do, that don't like what you like, and, and you would say, those aren't my people. My wife, the other day, told my friend's wife that she absolutely despises football season because it consumes me. And my friend's wife said to my wife, Amanda, you are my people. (laughs) Apparently, when two people dislike football together, they become a people. (laughs) Not a very fun group of people, in my opinion, but a people nonetheless. So do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people but love your neighbor as yourself. See in this verse in this in this context the their people were their Jewish brothers and sisters. They were their, their people. Neighbor is just another word for people in this scenario. It could just as easy, easily read, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your people as yourself. Love those who are like you as yourself. So we, we, we see pretty pretty early on here in what Jesus is doing when he's quoting Leviticus we recognize how a Jewish person would understand this law. And this particular Jewish person in this scenario that is talking to Jesus, this lawyer who's trying to test Jesus, when when Jesus asks, how do you read the law? He answers with the exact same thing that Jesus said in that situation in Mark 12. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And then the lawyer says, and, check this out, Jesus, I got you, and... Love your neighbor as yourself. And I imagine in that moment, the lawyer kind of looked at Jesus with a grin. Yeah, I answered how you wanted me to answer. I knew what you were gonna say, Jesus. I heard about that other, that other time when you answered that way about which law was the greatest. And so Jesus said to the man, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Good job, you got the horizontal part. You were listening, you nailed it, way to go. But as Jesus turned to walk away, the lawyer is going to use what he knew Jesus wanted him to say in order to attempt to trap Jesus. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on a second, Jesus. No, 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 don't leave yet. Don't leave yet. Before you go anywhere, I have one more question. This guy is like that kid who sits in the front row of class who always has one more question to try and prove his intelligence and trip up the professor or the teacher. Did you know anyone like this in high school or college? I did. I went to college at Point Loma Nazarene University down in San Diego, three people also went there. (laughs) Small school, small school. But anytime we got to get out of class early, the school sits right on the ocean. And anytime we got out of class early, it meant that we got to go to the beach. So we loved getting out of class early. Unless you had a class with Frank. I had a class with Frank. I swear, every time our professor was about to release us to enjoy God's creation in the Pacific Ocean, Frank would raise his hand. And it wasn't like a real hand raise. He did like the Boy Scout hand raise that just annoyed me even more. Like it irritated me to the depths of my being. And he would, he would always try and ask a question right at the end of class that would try and prove how intelligent he was. And he would try to trip up our professor and confuse our professor. And every single time that he did this, I wanted to take my biblical theology textbook, which is the class we were in. And I wanted to get it through his head and not just like the concepts, like I wanted to physically get it through his head. See, this lawyer in this situation is like that kid, Frank. He's asking a question to test Jesus and try to trap Jesus and prove that he's more intelligent than Jesus. Verse 29, look what happens. But he wanted to justify himself. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor, Jesus? How do how do you define this? How would you define neighbor? And that's when Jesus flips all of this on its head because a question like this does not merit a quick response. A question like this begs for a life-shaking, world-changing, culture-shifting illustration that would reshape everything for centuries to come. But before we go any further into that, I want to ask you one more question. And I would like you to raise your hand because I want all of us to see this. Raise your hand on all of our campuses, those watching online even, raise your hands. Even if you're at a coffee shop by yourself, raise your hand, no one's gonna judge you. (laughs) Actually, people might judge you, but just do it anyway. How many of us have ever heard the phrase, Good Samaritan? And look around. Most of us have our hands raised. Okay, you can put your hands down. That response that you just saw is true of any audience across the world, not just in churches. We have all heard the phrase Good Samaritan at some point in our life. I mean, there are things like Good Samaritan hospitals. If someone else stops to help someone in need, we might say a Good Samaritan stopped by Stopped by, and no one would be like, what? What's a Good Samaritan? There are even Good Samaritan laws in place that prevent and protect someone from being sued that helps someone who's either injured or ill. People throughout the world know what a good Samaritan is or have heard this phrase, good Samaritan. And the reason why is because of this story that Jesus is about to tell. Okay, one more question. And raise your hand again, all of our campuses and online in the coffee shop. How many of you have ever heard the golden rule before? Most of us have heard the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Treat others how you want to be Okay, maybe you don't know it. What is it? Treat others how you want to be treated. Good, that was almost better. You know, Marriott's biggest marketing campaign over the last year has been treating others how we want to be treated, hashtag golden rule. The reason we know what the golden rule is is because of this story that Jesus is about to share. Think about this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told a story to a small group of people that is still impacting our culture today. How incredible is that? I mean, you may not have even known that you were quoting Jesus when you said Good Samaritan or when you told your kids the golden rule, but we know these phrases. We know what these things are because what Jesus is about to share in these next few verses is a revolutionary thought that was going to change the world and we still see evidence of this today in 2018. Here's what Jesus says, here's how he starts the story. In reply to the question, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Okay, in reply to the question, Jesus starts telling a story, which is also common practice for Jesus. And I imagine the people around Jesus were like, come on, Jesus. Can you just answer our question once? You do this every single time we ask a question. You start going on and on about a story that has nothing to do with what we asked. And I imagine Jesus just smiled and kept going. (laughs) He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Okay, this is significant. Because this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was infamous in the first century as an extremely dangerous, unsafe road. It was known as the way of blood because of the blood that was shed there at the hands of robbers. It was steep and treacherous and long, 17 miles of road where robbers hid in the caves along the way. Every single one of the individuals sitting in Jesus's circle that day, listening to Jesus talk, would have known, would have been able to picture this exact road as he told this story. So a man was going down, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, a priest happened to be walking down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. I don't want anything to do with that. Now let's get some context to what Jesus is saying here. If the priest is on this road, he's most likely on his way to serve his two week period of service in the temple. The priest served the temple by taking in sacrifices and tithes and offerings and entering into the inner sanctuary, and they were on like a two week rotation. That's how they served. Now one of the laws in Deuteronomy says that for a priest or any of these people that were to walk by and see a man in this situation, if they even got within six feet of this guy, they would be listed as ritualistically unclean, which means that when he goes back to Jerusalem to begin the purification rites, where he would have to purchase a red heifer and then sacrifice the cow and burn it to ash. It was a process that took about seven days. He would then have to stay at one of the gates with all the other unclean people until another priest walks by to purify him, to do a cleansing ceremony and and purify him. This priest, if he were to stop by, would be filled with guilt, out a whole bunch of money. If he were to help the man, he'd be out a whole bunch of money. He would be unable to serve, which meant he couldn't take, the, take home the grain and the food offerings for his weeks of service to feed his family. To stop and help this man would have been an incredibly costly thing for him to do. And he chooses to walk past. And the same would be true for the Levite as well. There would be significant limitations if he were to be declared unclean. So on one hand, we have the law that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And this was a Jewish man on the side of the road. Love your people as your people. Love your people as yourself. On one hand, we have this. On the other hand, hey, if you come within six feet of this guy, you're gonna be marked unclean, and you're not gonna be able to do anything for two weeks. your, Your family's gonna suffer. So we see how difficult the law can be. We see how rules of religion can actually keep people from engaging when there's a need. But hold on, because look what Jesus says next. The beginning of verse 33, Jesus says these three words, but a Samaritan, but a Samaritan. Now just the mention of a Samaritan would have caused an audible gasp from Jesus' crowd. <gasps> how dare you bring them into this? Why would you even say the word Samaritan, Jesus? How dare you? You see, if you grew up in church, you've heard that Jews and Samaritans didn't really like each other that much. But it's way bigger than that. The best way to to describe the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans in the first century is institutionalized racism. The Samaritans were Jews who intermarried, intermarried? That's not how you say that word. Intermarried with the Assyrians after the Assyrians destroyed the northern tribes of Israel. They were half Gentile and half Jewish. They were known as half-breeds. The Jews said, this is how much they hated the Samaritans. They said that if you ate the bread of a Samaritan, it is equal to eating the flesh of a pig. And we know how Jewish people feel about pigs. There's even a morning prayer found in Jewish writings that was commonly prayed in Jesus' day, and it went something like this. Lord, give me today my daily bread. God, make today a good day. Take care of me, keep my family safe. Oh, and by the way, Lord, I pray that there are no Samaritans in the resurrection on the last day, amen. So you can see the pain, the hatred, the anger, the animosity that defined the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. But here's the thing about Samaritans. They still observed Mosaic law just like the priest and the Levite did. So the same purification and cleanliness laws applied to them as well. So we see the tension Jesus is creating here because his audience would have known that. Like, oh, they're gonna be marked unclean too, even though we hate them. But a Samaritan, verse 33, as he traveled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He did what the religious leaders would not do. He chose compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. He touched him. He cared for him. He began the process to help the man heal. I mean, think of, any, think of any time you put a Band-Aid on a child. There's something like intimate about it, right? There's a connection that's made. There's a certain depth to your care. Tears are wiped away. The Samaritan bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which was not cheap. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him, meaning that he was walking while the Jewish man was riding on his donkey and he took him to an inn, spending the night with him with a Jewish man, someone who absolutely hated him and someone his people absolutely hated as well. And he spent the night looking after him, taking care of him, helping him heal, making sure he didn't die. Jesus' audience that day would have, would have had a bunch of Jewish people who most of them could not even imagine the thought of ever doing this for a Samaritan. And probably none of them knew a Samaritan who would even entertain the idea of doing this for them. So as Jesus is talking, they're absolutely losing their minds. But Jesus isn't done. Look what he says next. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He goes way above and beyond, so over the top, the Samaritan leaves his credit card on file and says, charge this if there's any more expenses. And right when Jesus has his audience totally captivated and totally shocked, he does something that has redefined the way we understand the word neighbor even today. Remember the question that was asked earlier by the lawyer. Hey hey Jesus, who is my neighbor? Look at how Jesus reshapes the question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? See, this isn't a difficult question. This is pretty simple. Which of these three Loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving a stranger as himself? Which of these three treated a stranger like a neighbor? Which of these three loved someone who was not his people like he was his people? You see, who is my neighbor is the wrong question. Jesus asks who was a neighbor. It's not about figuring out who qualifies for your love. The focus of Jesus' teaching asks, how do I posture myself with others as I love God with everything? The expert in the law looked down at his feet and kicked the dirt around a little bit and sheepishly replied, the man who had mercy on him. Notice what he says, the man who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say Samaritan. The lawyer could not even bring himself to admit that the Samaritan was the one fulfilling the law. So instead he said, the one who had mercy. So Jesus said, go and do likewise. This is what you're accountable to for the the rest of your life. This is how you are to understand the law. Go and be a neighbor even to a stranger. So who is my neighbor? The way Jesus answers this question, the way Jesus, what Jesus shows us through this story is that my neighbor is anyone God puts along my path. Anyone God puts along along my path. Anyone. And this may seem difficult for some people because I know there are people in the room right now who don't actually like people all that much. Like you love dogs, but people? No. And then there's others of us who read this and go, whoa, wait, hold on, hold on one minute. What if anyone means everyone? Like even that person who is so annoying even that person who's extremely judgmental and rude, even that person who talks too much, even that relative who is so annoying, judgmental and rude and talks too much. Are you all thinking of someone right now? If not, it might be you. Just throwing it out there. (laughs) But I think anytime anytime we read this passage, you guys, or we hear someone talk about the good Samaritan and this story about loving your neighbor as yourself, we think that when, it, when we talk about loving anyone, we think it means everyone. Like I need to sell my house. I gotta give all my money away so that I can love everyone. And we get overwhelmed and a bit fearful for what this could all mean, but is that what Jesus is saying here? No. What Jesus is saying is that the person who was a neighbor was the one who responded to what he came across. It was the one who did what he could for someone he encountered and then he left. Like this might be some of the most valuable insight you'll get from this text today. There were boundaries in place for the Samaritan. He took off eventually. He didn't linger around and let this man take advantage of him. Some of you might be in a situation right now where someone's taking advantage of you and you feel guilt because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. It might be time to put some firm boundaries in place. Because here's what what this story shows us. This example that Jesus tells, there was compassion and mercy and it was extreme, but it was also very realistic. It was attainable. The story of the good Samaritan implores us to do what we can to love anyone we encounter or come across. This is what we're accountable to, to go and do likewise. Likewise but how? Like how? This is so big. How can, this, how can this actually manifest itself in my life? How is this realistically attainable? Well, if we're following the example of Jesus' story, then for one, when God puts anyone along our path and we see a need, meet it. Not see a need and try and figure out, is this need valid? Like how did you get here? I need to do like 25 questions to figure out if I should help you or not. Is this legitimate? no. The story Jesus shared about the Good Samaritan was the story of an individual who came across a need and did not hesitate to do what he needed to do in order to meet that need. You know, about seven years ago, I had a chance to go to Haiti after the, a little while after the the huge earthquake hit in 2010. And we took 35 high school students with us, which don't ever take 35 high school students to another country. That's when I started losing my hair, and I was like, I don't want to do student ministries ever again. Can I be the campus pastor? Yeah, cool, okay. <laughs> and while we were there, we, we spent time in this orphan orphanage, but we heard about this island called Loganov. And what happened, Haiti's kind of shaped like this, the island of Haiti's shaped like, like this, and there's this little island that sits just off about two-hour boat ride outside of Port-au-Prince, and it's called Loganov. And we heard that when the earthquake hit, there were all these kids who had lost their homes, they lost their parents, they were all by themselves, and the government didn't know what to do with these kids. So they decided, they came up with the idea that here's, what, here's how we'll handle this situation. We'll load all of these kids onto boats and we'll drop them off the, on the island of Loganov. That was their solution. There became an immediate need on the island of Loganov to care for these kids. There were some people living there, but all of a sudden there was this huge influx of orphans on the island. And that's when this woman, Madame Soliet, Incredible woman. She saw a need, and she met it. She took in eight kids. Two years later, she had 70 kids. Today, she has 80 kids. And they stay at a children's village on the island of Loganov. I had the opportunity to go there for five straight years and get to know these kids, get to know their stories, get to hear how they ended up there, and what they were doing with their life. It was such a special time. I dunked on some of them. That's a 10-foot rim, too, by the way. We can take that down now. That's, an- yeah, thank you. <laughs> There's 80 kids at this children's village. We still, our high school, high school ministry, across a few of our campuses, still sends kids every single summer to care for these boys and girls. These boys and girls who we wouldn't know, who, who knows where they would even be if this woman, Madame Soliette, didn't see a need and meet it. Now there are 80 kids who felt abandoned and cast away who feel loved and cared for and known. Because one woman saw a need and did not walk past did not walk by on the other side. She met the need. No, I'm not saying when we see a need that we have to open up an 80-kid orphanage. But I am imploring us that when we see a need, we figure out how to meet it. The second thing that we learn from this story, when God puts anyone along our path, is to count the cost and pay it. Count the cost and pay it. Here's what typically happens when we count the cost. When we go, oh, there's a need. I should meet that need. How much is that gonna cost? Ooh, that's gonna be tough. We realize how big and inconvenient it might be to meet that need. And so we count the cost, and then we talk ourselves out of it. This happens all the time. We talk ourselves out of meeting the need because we realize how important our stuff is. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., on the day before he died, talked about this very parable in his, I've been on the mountaintop speech. He said, and you know, it's possible that the priest and Levi looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was just faking and he was acting like he'd been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? The priest and Levite did not stop because touching the dead man would have made them unclean and prevented them from from fulfilling their, their priestly duties at the temple. Don't miss this. They had priorities and responsibilities which they determined were more important than getting involved with this man who needed help. They counted the cost and they talked themselves out of it. Here's the deal. Love that doesn't cost you something is not called love. That's called convenience. Love does not have loopholes. Love doesn't look for a way out. Love demands that a price be paid. See a need, meet it, count the cost, pay it. All from a story that changed the world and it has the potential to do so today. Think about this with me. Thousands of cornerstones meeting the needs they see and paying the cost for anyone God puts along our path. This is what it looks like to repair the fabric of the East Bay. This can have significant impact. This can change your families. This can change your neighborhoods. This can change your city. This can change the world, just like this story did 2,000 years ago when it completely shifted the culture for Jesus' listeners, and it's still doing the same thing today, and it offers us an opportunity to do the same, to be a Samaritan, just like we learned about in this story, and just like Jesus, but wait, Jesus was Jewish, right? Yeah, but he was also the Samaritan. Let me explain and I'll close with this. In John chapter eight, Jesus is teaching and the religious leaders are relentlessly hounding him. By this time, the Pharisees had had it up to here with Jesus, they're trying to do whatever they can to trap him and arrest him and, and, and cause him to, to commit heresy so that they can kill him. And in one exchange, they start calling Jesus' names. They say to Jesus, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. And this is how Jesus responds. John 8, verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. He denies having a demon, but he says nothing about the accusation of being a Samaritan. It's not in his response. Why? Because he couldn't deny what they were calling him. He couldn't deny this name that they threw out his way. He couldn't deny that, that he was a Samaritan because he ultimately fulfilled what he taught about loving your neighbor even to people who weren't his people. Jesus became the true good Samaritan to you and to me when he gave his life for us. And when he did, when Jesus gave his life, when he sacrificed himself, loving your neighbor could no longer be confined to a location because Jesus was a neighbor to every person in every, lo- every location throughout every generation. What does it look like to, to love someone else who God loves just as much as God loves me? Someone else, even the someone I'm not like, even the someone I don't like, and even the someone who doesn't like me. You see a need, you meet it. You count the cost and pay it because anyone God puts along our path is someone for whom Jesus died. Go and do likewise. Father God, you are such a good father. God, just saying that I'm grateful that you saw a need and met it and counted the cost and paid it seems so insignificant because I realized that my, our eternity was at stake when you laid down your life for us. the most selfless, loving act in all of human history, and you did it for me, I don't deserve that. God, I'm grateful for your your mercy. I'm grateful for your grace and your compassion and your love. And God, I know that my response, that our response as a church, is to go and do likewise. So God, we ask that this week you put someone along our path that has a need that we can meet. Someone that we can count the cost and pay it just like you. We desire to imitate you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in the matchless, incredible, mighty, powerful name that you hold Amen.